0: And to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Tim Jacobs, and he'll be answering your questions on tactics for bass, panfish, pike, and other warm water species. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Tim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Ditcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening to the show and let other people know about the great show we're having tonight. Content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Tim Jacobs about tactics for bass, panfish, pike, and other warm water species. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gills Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations, providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com. Or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Tim, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Tim's section that says Register for Our Free Drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Tim's latest book, Tactics for Bass and Other Warm Water Species, courtesy of Stackpole Books. See what other books that Stackpole has to offer? You can always go to stackpolebooks.com. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely, type fast, take notes, and maybe you'll be the lucky winner of Tim's latest book, Tactics for Bass and Other Warm Water Species. Our guest tonight is Tim Jacobs. Tim is a native of Michigan, is a fly fisherman, and a fly tire from the Roaring Fork Valley in Colorado. He works as an instructor in the Michigan Youth Trout Camp each summer and for Project Healing Waters in Colorado. Aside from published articles and the numerous clinics he conducts, Tim is a Federation of Fly Fishing Certified Casting Instructor who taught SAGE casting clinics during the 1990s. He has guided in the Steamboat Springs area and the Roaring Fork Valley, and Tim is also a demonstration fly tire for the Whiting Farms Pro Team and Regal Vice Pro Staff. Tim, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you for having me, Roger. Yeah, good to have you back. Uh, last time we yeah. were talking about tying hair hair flies, right? Um, yeah, we were. Yeah, with deer near hair flies and so forth.
1: Yes, that's right. We were when my first book came out. I think we did that. Boy, I think it was summer of 2018. It seems like it was a while ago.
0: Yeah, you got a better memory than I do.
1: <laughs> I'd, I'd have to look it up. But after doing, uh, what do I have now?
0: Some. 375 shows. It's hard to yeah. remember exactly when I did each <laughs> one, <laughs> but I'm anyway, sure. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But if folks, if you do want to look at that, you can always search the archive for Tim Jacobs, and then you can find the other show that we did with him and enjoy that as well on, on tying uh, deer hair flies. So take a look and enjoy that as well. Well, Tim, yeah, you just uh, published this book. In fact, uh, when I saw you last at the Denver Fly Fishing Show, it was just being released by Stackpole, right? You had just had your new stack there of of authors' books, Uh, (laughs) right?
1: I did. I did. In fact, I through my book distributor. I actually they weren't actually due out until March 1st, but they were in the warehouse, so I was able to get a bunch of them and. uh, I got them just about a few days before the fly fishing show in Denver, so it was kind of fun to to bring them down to the show and you know have an opportunity for people to take a look at them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great book. It covered a lot of ground there, and uh, hopefully we'll pick some of those juicy pieces out of that book tonight from you <laughs> and okay. share some of the, the ideas and the tactics and the, the methods of you know, fishing for warm water species. In fact, I got an email the other day from one of our listeners asking for more shows on warm water species. So um, so this is, here we go. Here's another one. And we just got here done go. doing one with uh, Robert McConnell down in Houston in southeastern Texas fishing for warm water species down there. We talked okay. about white bass and carp and gar and things like that. So, yeah, it was a pretty interesting show there, too. Well, let's dive in here. Do you do most of your... Warm water fishing in lakes, or do you also do it uh, in rivers as well?
1: I fish most of it I do in Michigan. You know, I'm here in western mm-hmm. Colorado right now, and, and you know, I'm surrounded by great trout fishing. But, you know, I grew up in Michigan, and so most of my warm water fishing is in Michigan. And probably mm-hmm. I put more days into lakes than rivers, but I also jump in. I have a couple of really great, smallmouth rivers back in Michigan that I really love to hop into when the conditions are right and what's fun about a lot of those smallmouth rivers is they well I've never encountered another angler there fishing once in a great while somebody might come floating by and you know throwing a spinner or something but as far as somebody seriously fishing them with a fly rod they just don't get fished so you know the smallmouth tend to be pretty aggressive, and a lot of those rivers have carp in them, too, and so Hmm. that's kind of an added bonus, you know, with the rivers, but I probably, most of my days are spent on lakes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I just remember from
0: my childhood days visiting my grandfather and his house backed up to the Menominee River up in the UP of Michigan, and we used to jump in the boat there, and we fished for smallmouth, largemouth, pike. And so that was my first introduction to fishing in Wisconsin, Michigan area. But I yeah. had a lot of fun back then. Yeah,
1: yeah. That was yeah. a big river, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about fly fishing these lakes is, uh, you know, they get fished, but the guys, no one fly fishes them. I mean, literally nobody. I've never, in all the years I've been fishing these lakes, I, I don't even think, I've encountered one other fly fisherman I just never see guys really? fly fishing them once in a great while the we have some local bass clubs and those guys they're pretty good bass fishermen but they're fishing with traditional gear and they come around and they're working the shoreline but a lot of the casual anglers are are kind of just out in the middle of the lake it's more a, I think a something to do while they're just kind of cruising up and down the lake, and they'll troll a little bit or something like that, and the shorelines are left alone. I mean, I have the shoreline cover fishing pretty much to myself, even on my home lake of Lake George, which is pretty, it's cabins just about all the way around. There's almost, there's very little wild shoreline on the lake, but literally nobody fly fishes it. So, you know, Hmm. fly fishing, when the fish see flies, it's something that's pretty new to them. Wow. Wow, that's it's hard to believe. I mean, you know, course, out right here in
0: Colorado, it's that's almost all you see is fly fishermen, it seems like.
1: but uh, Well, in yeah, the frying yeah. pan, you know, I mean, I used to, I guided on the frying pan for a few years and it's competitive to get into the water. So, sure, yeah. Um, yeah that's yeah, I mean, that's there's a polite way to fishing it. Yeah, so it's pretty refreshing to go back to Michigan where I have very little competition for the fishing that I have back there, which is right. nice. And then, I can get up into the Upper Peninsula, and there's even less less competition there. Well, anyway, yeah. So yeah, so I guess yeah. I guess probably have more lake days than anything else. Yeah,
0: yeah. How did the book come about? Because you know you're focused on warm water species,
1: and as you well, said,
0: probably most of the experiences from the Midwest, Upper Midwest, there, yeah.
1: right? Yeah, it is. How I kind of I've always taken opportunities to write. You know, I kind of have had this in my head to write for a long time. And I've actually written stuff. I wrote a few articles for a little kind of a newspaper format, Midwest Fly Fishing Magazine. I've written for various newsletters, things like that. And when Rick Takayashi did his book on modern terrestrials, he put out a call for people to submit articles. In I think the back of the book it's called... I don't know, something about advice from the masters or something of that nature, but it's articles that different people put together on fishing terrestrials for trout. And I wrote an article that got accepted, Stackpole accepted it and published it in the book. And when that article got published, I contacted Stackpole and said, hey, I'm kind of interested in doing a book. My initial, this book I just published, And the second half of my first book on spinning and tying deer hair was kind of my first proposal to Stackpole as a complete book. And Jay Nichols, who's the editor there, came back and said, no, we really, and he's right, totally right about this. You have fly tying books and you have fishing books and they need to be two separate things. And so Mm. he was the one who encouraged me to, you know, try to push the trout, push the deer hair. He said, just do a book on as many different uses for deer hair as possible. So that's how the first book came about. But this book has been kind of sitting in the background since then, really. And so subsequently, when I talked with Jay, I proposed, we talked a little bit about this book. And this book came up, I don't know if you've noticed, this is a book as part of a series called Fly Fishing Essentials. This is the second book released in the series. The first one was on dry flies. And I don't know how many books are planned for the series. But he wanted what he called a primer. I mean, when we talked about the book, it was about a 45,000 to maybe a 55,000-word book, which in book terms is kind of a smaller book. Uh, I think my first book was over 65,000 words. And so he wanted just me to touch on a lot of different subjects. And so my thought behind the book was, Well, when you go up on the rivers here in Colorado, you're fishing for trout. Now, there's rainbows and browns and different kinds of trout, but you're fishing for trout. On a lake in the Midwest, in a lot of places, there's a lot of different species of fish in the lake, and depending on what you're going after, there's different ways in which you go about fishing them, different places you fish for them, and you can have a day where you can catch a number of different species of fish, and so that was my idea behind the book is... Well, if you go somewhere, well, what are all the different things? And I just did a light touch. Probably the deepest dive in this book was in largemouth bass fishing on lakes because that's what I do the most of. All the other chapters are kind of just a light touch, just kind of here's some ideas to kind of get you going in the direction of angling for those different species of fish. And so, yeah, so the book, that's kind of how this book kind of came about. But it's been kind of one of those books that's been rummaging around with me for quite a few years so it was a a good i really enjoyed the opportunity to get to finally sit down and write it
0: (laughs) well good for you well let's talk about lakes because you know just that's where you fish the most for warm water species i think probably most people do tell us you know what we need to know about lakes because i think you know you talk about writing and i i think about writing sometimes when a writer sits down and with their pad of paper or their computer and the, it's got it's a blank page or a blank screen is like where do I start and I think maybe a lot of people that don't fish lakes see a lake that way you know like where do yeah. I start so um, tell us you know about the different kinds of lakes and what we should know you know basically about lakes before you even start going looking for fish
1: well I think the biggest thing to look for when you I will say most of my experience experiences in the Midwest and the Great Lakes region. Um, I know those lakes. I know how to look at those lakes really well. You know, you mentioned you had a person on from down south in Texas. The reservoir thing and all that, I've never fished that. So I don't have any great expertise in those kind of fisheries. But when it comes to the Midwestern lakes and the kind of lakes you find, you know, Illinois, even I think you know, as you drive across Nebraska, you see the ponds along the Interstate 80, those kind of places. The main thing you're looking for is food shelves. We have one lake, and I'm trying to have lost the name of it now, but if you look at a lake map just south of our cottage, if you look at a lake map of that book, one of the things you notice on the lake map is that all the contour lines are crunched right up against the shoreline. And if you go to that lake and put a boat on it, One of the things you notice is that you have a very short little sand beach and then literally the lake just turns and drops down to 20 or 20. I mean, it's just there's no, there's very little shallow water cover around the edges of the lake. There's very little, there's only a few spots on this particular lake because I've gone and looked at it and fished it. And there's very few places where there's lily pads, reeds, those kind of shoreline cover. You know, what you want to see in a lake, ideally, kind of an ideal lake, would be you've got areas that where the contour lines on a lake map are spread out, meaning you've got some nice shallow flats that are in that three to six foot range, probably. And then you've got some deep water in the lake, You know, some deeper. I mean, it doesn't have to be super deep. I mean, literally 25 feet of water is plenty of water for the fish to kind of retreat into in the wintertime. And so you're looking for that shoreline cover, and largemouth bass in particular, they are shallow water predators, when they can be. I've read some stuff about some of the big California reservoirs that are deep reservoirs. I've never fished them, but my understanding there is the fish tend to be deeper. But where they have the opportunity, they are shallow water predators. Some of my biggest largemouth bass have come literally out of water that was, you know, a foot and a half, two feet deep they sit up there tight, and that's where a lot of the forage is for them, you know, the small bait fish or whatever else happens to be up along those shorelines. So when you look at those lakes, you want to see those lakes that have those productive shallow flats that are going to be good feeding areas for them. Um, So that's probably the biggest thing. In the book, I go through three. Another type of lake you don't want to get into, I don't think is a good fly fishing lake, are these big Um, oh, and I have the term in the book, I've kind of forgot it now, but they're these big deep water lakes and they mainly have like lake trout and stuff in them and they're very cold water lakes and mainly guys are trolling them with downriggers and that kind of thing and there's a lot of lakes like that in Michigan. Um, If you're familiar with Michigan, like Torch Lake and out in the Great Lakes themselves, Lake Michigan, um, those are the kind of big water lakes and they, they don't adapt themselves real well other there's a few uh i guess uh places where they might but they don't adapt themselves real well to fly rod fishing you're looking at your smaller lakes with good shoreline cover it's probably what you want to see yeah
0: right yeah yeah i mean my picture i mean my dream picture in my mind of a good bass lake is is grass and lily pot pads along the shoreline and some big logs sticking out, and, (laughs) you know, that's why, like, oh, that's, like, my go-to area, but, um, and just in general, I mean, when we're talking, you know, when you're talking largemouth, are the smallmouth going to be in a similar area? I mean, don't most of the
1: fish in the the warm water stick along the shoreline? Yeah, most of them do. You know, we're, a lot of the lakes I fish up there, they have pike in them as well, and, you know, the pike are, they like cooler water temperatures they tend to move offshore a little bit during the summer months when the water heats up and so they're not up That tends to be more predominantly the bass and then of course all the bluegill the panfish that whole group of fish are up there pretty tight as well to the shorelines most of the time you know if you're fishing a shoreline If you're fishing a shoreline that has, you mentioned your ideal picture in your head is lily pads and a log and all those kind of natural cover, and those are, of course, those are the lakes you love to get into, but the truth is a lot of these lakes, it's docks and pontoon boats and things like that that are the cover, you know, Uh and those may not be the most scenic places to go, but there's plenty of fish under them, and really, if you and the other thing about bass, too, is shade. I think light and shade are big factors. What I tend to do when I fish in the mornings is I try to pick the eastern side of the shoreline, and I look for shaded areas. The bass, I think, tend to be more aggressive in the shade. They feel, I think, more comfortable, more confident when they're not exposed to the sunlight, and they become a lot more aggressive, especially for topwater bass bugs. And so not only do I look for cover, you know, like you comment, like you said about natural cover, but I also, but or man-made cover, either one. But then I also look at shade. And even if I'm fishing later in the day, oftentimes a dock or a boat will cast a shadow one side or the other. And if you're going along and picking little spots, hitting those little shaded areas, a lot of times they're going to be where the fish are I don't know if they're sitting right there or they're sitting underneath the cover, but they just tend to be more aggressive coming out into the shaded areas. Yeah, do they? Um, the vast, are the bass concerned as are the
0: trout with predatory, um, you know, birds? And is that why they're hiding in the shade as well?
1: That could be. We have a few bald eagles. Surprisingly enough, on our lake, we've got a few bald eagles. They're big, and I see them coming over the lake and i've seen them occasionally dive in you know i think we may have a few ospreys so yeah they will pick they will come down and grab fish the other thing of course we have our loons loons hunt fish too but not from the air but you know probably i think i'm sure that's probably part of it you know part of Mm -hmm. why those shaded areas tend to be a little more aggressive i think part of it too is if you're sitting back in the shade i mean that's not unlike being on a trout stream you know if you can fish if you can get along the the banks or something and get into a little bit of a shaded area and look out into a run where you see some sun, um, that's a good place to fish from for trout because they don't. Anytime you can approach a fish and they don't know you're there just makes everything a lot easier.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Now, do you do most of your fishing using some kind of boat flotation device or whatever?
1: or I have I have, if you look on the cover of the book, the new book, that's my old boat. And uh, I actually fished out of that boat with my grandfather when I was about 10 or 11 years old. That's how old i was. It's it's Uh an aluminum boat. It doesn't look anything. I don't know what he'd think of it if he saw it today because I put a deck in the front, so I've got a flat deck to stand on, and I've carpeted it. In fact, I have a little sidebar article, I think, in the book on, on how I set my boat up. And so, you know, when you fly fish out of a boat, you want a flat deck, you want to carpet it so it's quiet. But it's a simple boat. It's just I got a little electric trolling motor on the front of it and I just I run around on a little with a little five and a half outboard so I don't have a I don't have a big fancy like our bass tournament guys that have these big boats. I don't have a boat like that. My boat's pretty simple.
0: Yeah, yeah. But just from a general rule of thumb do you is fishing going to be better from if you're out on the water floating rather than from the shore?
1: It depends. I mean, if you're fishing ponds, you can fish shoreline. You know, we fish back there's a there's a in the walleye. I caught a the walleye in the there's a photo of the walleye I caught out of a from a pond. So I do occasionally fish from the shore into small ponds and stuff. The problem with shoreline fishing on a lot of these lakes is you're very limited in where you can get in, you know, where you can go. Plus, if you – and float tubing or if you got little, you know, you know I don't know, float tubing you can't – you know, you're not going to get real far from your – whatever, wherever you put in the lake at. I mean, you can go ways, But I see guys fishing out of kayaks. I've never fished out of them. But I think – and I see guys who fish a lot of these lakes with kayaks. So there's other options than having a boat. I think, you know, the bigger lakes, any of the bigger lakes, you definitely need a boat for. And the other thing, too, is outboards. The picture in the book is just a little five and a half I have, which only pushes me about seven miles an hour. So with that outboard, I have to be conscious of how big a lake I'm getting onto and, you know, how long it takes me to get from one place to another place in case. Weather moves in, you got to get off a lake. You got to kind of be a little conscious of that. So I would sure. say, yeah, with lakes, you want a boat. I think that's the easiest way to fish them, is out of a boat.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, Tim, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dig more into fish okay. in warm water. So hang tight. We'll be right back. All right. Musky Town is so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide and experienced musky hunter or just getting into predators on the fly, Wherever life's adventures take you, musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so that they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything they can help you with. Next time you think of musky, go to muskytown. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. That's muskytown.com, 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Tim Jacobs about tactics for bass, panfish, pike, and other warm water species. If you'd like to ask him a question, let go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that a text box to send us your question. But Tim, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So I know finishing up a book is a big deal. uh, So what else you got going on?
1: Well, I'm kind of in the middle of winter here. I've got, I'm going to be in Salt Lake City this weekend, not this coming weekend, but the following weekend at the Wasatch Fly Fishing Expo. I'll be tying flies and signing books and stuff. And the other thing I'm working on is I've got I've had a YouTube channel just sort of sitting there that was set up for me and by my nephew who's kind of my tech guy and it's just been sitting there for quite a while with nothing on it so I decided this winter I need to start adding some content to it so I've been producing some videos if you go to YouTube just Google Tim Jacobs fly fishing and you'll find the videos I decided to start with, um, the first video I did was real simple. It was just like, here's the tools, here's how to put a hook in a vise, here's how to wrap the thread, and here's how to do a whip finish. I mean, it was just the very basic of getting started, because occasionally I would have people come by at the shows, and they would say, yeah, I'm kind of interested in fly tying. Of course, I always refer them to local fly shops and classes. That's probably the best way to do it. But I wanted to produce a video for those guys to or people those people just to go okay well here's the real basics of getting started then i've done a few simple trout flies i'm about to upload i finally dove into bass bugs and doing the deer hair and all that so i'm going to be uploading in the next day or two i've got four videos on doing bass bugs i'm going to be uploading to the youtube channel and i'm keeping it real simple i literally just stick my phone in front of me and turn the camera on and like i'm tying at at a show or something i just kind of Roll with it. I don't script it or anything like that. But the YouTube channel is something I've been having some fun with. Where how do people find that? What's what's the channel? If name? you go, well, the other thing that my nephew redid my uh, website, and so if you go to the website and you go into the blog, he's linked out a few of my videos in the blog site. So if you went to my website timjacobflyfishing dot com and you go into the blog area you'll see just a couple of those videos up and once you get to the youtube channel you'll see the rest of them or i think you could just google youtube tim jacobs fly fishing or search it in inside of youtube and it'd probably come right to it so yeah. i i have noticed i've got other videos there i've been videoed like at the fly tackle dealer show Krenick flash company wanted me to tie with some of their materials i was one of the lighting tires there and i was like, series of videos there with me tying with some of their stuff and i did a series of videos with uh, anglers all down in denver those might pop up too if you just google it on the internet those videos may pop up those videos are not part of my youtube channel but if you find my youtube channel and subscribe to it then anytime i put a new video up you'll get a little notice that'll pop up when you go to youtube yeah,
0: yeah. I just searched YouTube for Tim Jacobs Fly Fishing, and there you are. Your channel is called Tim Jacobs. Uh, yeah. so there you go, folks, on finding him. And uh, then timjacobsflyfishing.com, right, is your website?
1: Well, timjacobsflyfishing.com, yeah. The site just got redone this winter. I really love the way it looks. My nephew did a great job with it. He's my tech guy. And he just did a bunch of stuff in it where, it, it you know, you can look for it on your phone or on a computer, and it kind of, Scales to whatever device you're using. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, well, thanks for. Sh- yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say both the books are there too. If you want links out, you can go in and there's links out to both uh, Barnes and Noble and Amazon mm-hmm. to get the books if you want.
0: Right. Right.
1: Great. Yeah.
0: All righty. Well, let's uh, get back into it here. You know, when we um, we were talking about lakes, and you know, this kind of applies to all the fish, but well, let me just leave that till we get to specific fish here, and I'll ask more okay. specific, uh, the specific question I was going to ask. Um, but let's talk about equipment. In general, what do you have in the boat out there when you're warm water fishing? I'm assuming you have to have a kind of a wide range of weighted rods, right? Because you're dealing with fish. Yeah, yeah. Fish you know,
1: your, stand- to your standard trout rods will be, you know, your four weights, five weights, whatever. Those are perfectly. Does, that's what I fish with for a pan fish. The thing about fishing for bass is you're throwing larger flies, and so the rod, you're probably using seven, eight-weight rods for the most part, but quite frankly, the most important part of that is your line. you got to have some kind of a, a more um, weight-forward line like a bass-bug taper line. Bass-bug taper lines are basically weight forward lines that they push the weight out to the end of the line. And so when you cast, you have more weight there to carry the fly and turn the fly over when you're casting. And so I think, you know, if you've got, say, a seven-weight streamer rod that you're fishing for trout, and probably more important than anything else is you don't need a new rod to go bass fishing, but it probably would be good to invest in a bass bug line you know, kind of one of the more extreme weight-forward type lines. And the other thing, too, about lines is, you know, a lot of times we start thinking like eight-weight rod, eight-weight line. But if you think more in terms of, you know, lines, this is getting a little on the technical side maybe, but fly lines are measured, the first 30 feet are measured in what's called a grain weight. And don't ask me what a grain weight is. It's a very small unit of weight. I think I explained it in the book. I think I searched it and explained what an actual grain weight is. I've kind of forgotten now what it is. But it's how we measure fly lines. Most modern rods have a pretty wide range of grain weight lines that they will fish. In fact, you can even overline a lot of rods. And, like, for example, I have a seven foot ten Reddington Predator rod that says it's an 8-weight rod, but it casts a 9-weight line beautifully. And so... Having those proper lines, I think, is the really big thing that'll turn over those bigger flies when you're fishing. Well, it's and more about the,
0: uh, the the weight of the rod and line for throwing the big flies, not so much as the fighting uh, not, very large fish. No, not fish, so much. Right?
1: You know, yeah, it's not so much fighting the fish; it's being able to deliver the flies. Right. Another thing too, you know, let's if for a moment we can jump to musky. I have some really, you know, I think a lot of people think along the lines of, well, musky, really big flies, and, you know, really big rods, 10, 11-weight rods, and I have that. I have some big flies, but curiously enough, some of the lakes we fish, we've done better on smaller patterns. I mean, I'm talking like four or five-inch streamer-type patterns, and we've actually, in fact, one of our... I've not cracked the 50-inch mark on muskie but we've we've cracked 40 and one of our larger muskie that we caught that was uh was about 38 39 inches I caught it on a 6-weight it was a 6-weight Reddington Predator warrant rod that's a saltwater rod wow. so it's a good stout rod but it was a 6-weight rod and we were fishing a fishing a little yak hair which is a really nice translucent hair. It's not a hollow hair. We're not talking deer hair here. Yak hair is kind of, it's very translucent, and it was a little perch colored pattern that I would say was about four or five inches long. So again, this is not a trophy. I mean, I know most guys don't, If you're not catching you know, 50 inch musky. People don't seem to take too much note, but these are nice musky and they're fun to catch. So I would say for bass, and pike you can go along pike the same way i think 678 you can do it with six, seven, eights. but you got to the thing is you got to modify the flies you're not going to cast you know a 12 or 13 inch musky fly on a 6 weight rod you know? yeah, so it's right. more about yeah. ma- it's more about matching the flies you're casting to the rod than it necessarily is yeah. the fish
0: yeah good good let's talk about largemouth bass specifically now And when we're out on the lake, how do you, you know, we talked a little bit about cover and so forth, but when you're specifically looking for largemouth, give us some tips on, you know, dissecting the lake and where you go to look for them, as opposed to smallmouth or pike or anything else.
1: Well, I'm always typically, okay, first of all, you think about water temperature a little bit. You know, once your water temperature is hit, about 75 to 78 degrees, it starts getting in upper 70s, all the way up into the mid 80s, the bass are going to start really pushing up into the shallow water in the summertime and early in the day. And so I'll begin, if I'm really chasing smallmouth, I'll always begin my day by looking at those areas we talked about earlier, shaded areas, cover, that kind of stuff up tight to the cover, and then Typically you'll things will start slowing down around ten or eleven o'clock. When the sun really starts coming up and those shallow areas start getting really lit up by the sun, the bass will of oftentimes move off to like the first drop off. They'll get down a little deeper. So a lot of times then what I'll do is I will and this I think is one of the brilliant things of modern tackle and, and it's the loop to loop systems on fly lines now. I'll now you can now get well, for example, Rio makes something called a Versa leader. They make it for spay rods, but they work real well for warm water. They're a 10-foot coated leader on 25-pound test mono. So it's a sink tip. So basically, you unloop your, bass, your floating bass leader. You loop one of these sink tips on, and you suddenly have got a 10-foot sink tip. And they come in different sink values, that kind of thing. Or I see scientific anglers just, Produce a series of these sink tip tips and again they, now they actually do say in their literature that they can be used for single hand rods or spay but I will then add like one of these sink tips and I'll move offshore and you know start maybe fishing a woolly bugger or something like that deeper mm-hmm. that would be one thing I would do you know, or then I also <laughs> Like, maybe later in the day, too, I might, what I would maybe do is is switch back to a floating, a regular leader, but put on, like, uh, maybe a fairly heavily weighted, like, a crayfish pattern or jig-type pattern that's kind of tied with some lead eyes that I know is going to drop down. One of the things I do with those, too, is I put them on clips. You know, Rio makes a set of clips. Scientific Anglers makes clips. I, I put a clip on the end of the leader, and so then when you fish these jig type flies that have weight in the head of them they're on a hinge and so literally they go vertical when they drop if that Mm -hmm. kind of makes sense sure they drop vertical and so what i'll do then is i'll just start going down and trying to pick out the shaded areas i pulled some fairly nice bass out from underneath you know lily pads or next to docks that kind of thing but i fished that shaded edge and I drop that thing right in on the bottom and let it sit there for a moment, and then I'll just hop it a few times, and that sometimes will pull the fish out from that shaded area because even though they're, you know, they're shallow, they're underneath stuff. Yeah, and so that's yeah. I got, a, yeah um, I got a question
0: in on the internet here, uh, and it kind of ties into what you're just talking about. It's uh, Robert Page in Massachusetts asks, "What's the best way to fish for bass suspended at?" depths under 10 feet in a big lake using a fly rod so that's kind of what you're are you saying like after yeah. the morning morning session then you're going to move off maybe to a little deeper a little
1: bit but you yeah. know let's face it i mean a fly rod what 10 to maybe 15 feet of water if you're starting to chase bass in water deeper than 15 feet there are guys that do it you know i mean i can describe I can describe a setup, it's a horrendous setup to fish with. I've done it. But if you get a lead core line and you put a running line on it, like a Cortland braided mono line on it, and you shoot it out, you can let the thing drop down to 20, 25 feet and just drop it down to the bottom of the lake. And if you fish like a floating deer hair type pattern, that'll lift up off the bottom. I can tell you what it's like if, any, if anybody out there is a – is kind of a bass tournament, you know, standard tackle bass person, it's what emulates what's called a Carolina rig where but man, you're really trying to prove a point. You know, 'cause it fishes it's a horrendous thing to fish. I think quite frankly, twelve feet of water is about the most the deepest you can go. If maybe a little deeper, but that's getting to be about the limits of where I fish. Now most of the lakes I fish the fish don't rarely go. I can find fish shallower than that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the way he was describing, I don't know. One of the things I've done with muskie, and I don't know if this would relate to his situation or not, is that we've got this one lake we fish. We have a bay, and the bay drops down to about 12 to 15 feet, but there's a weed bed in it that comes up about 6 or 7 feet. And so what we do is we fish streamers right above the weed, the, the level of the weed. And it's a pretty good weed bed, but so you're only fishing, you're fishing about six feet deep, even though the water's deeper. So I don't know. In Massachusetts, I'm not familiar with New England fishing, so I don't know exactly what the lake would look like. But you know, if the, you've got a weed bed coming up, that sort of then makes the water depth uh, that you're fishing less, if that makes sense. You know, you can fish that top above the weed line, and it's only maybe six feet down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Well, there's some ideas. Yeah, I know those heavy lines. Uh, last time I was in Belize, we were fishing a channel for tarpon, and using 450 grain, you know, sinking line, and that was work. <laughs> you know, yeah. with a 11 weight rod and that, that heavy line, and it's getting deep. And
1: yeah, uh, the only yeah. thing that yeah. made yeah. it
0: worse is when you hooked
1: up, <laughs> it yeah. got heavier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I pulled a few fish like that. I, I honestly, I don't even have that system in my bag anymore. It just became yeah. I really pretty much fish, and I don't even really fish sink tips anymore. I, I'll double up on some of these space sink tips if I need a longer sink tip, and some of them are graduated. I can actually put together a graduated 20 foot sink tip by looping the correct two of them uh-huh. together that
0: yeah. that
1: have uh, you know that have the correct weight, so you get that straight drop. Another thing, let me throw one other idea out there. One of the things about largemouth bass fishing is I don't think the fish themselves, I don't know exactly the reasoning for this, but if you get a storm front come through and suddenly the water drops a few degrees, you get these cold fronts that come through in the summer, and they can tend to really slow the fishing down. And I think the reason is it more goes down to the level of the insects in the water, kind of the beginning of the food chain a little bit. It slows all that down, which just kind of goes up through the food chain. And everything slows down for a day or two. One of the things I've done, and I actually have a little sidebar article in the book about this, is I tie big nymphs. And I've gone to Polly Rothborough's book, Big Casual Dresses, a nondescript nymph, or some of uh, Dave Whitlock's uh, red fox squirrel hair nymphs. I'll tie them pretty big and then I'll use a sink tip and I'll throw those out and I'll get into about that six to eight feet of water. And the bass are sitting there, they're just not real active. And I'll literally just kinda of hand crawl that nymph along real slow. Just kind of work it along real slow. And you know, you're not catching them you're not catching fish the way you would when their metabolisms are really kicking in and they're really after stuff. But you can always come up with a few fish with that method. So that kind of that slow nymphing method has been a really good productive method for me. You could also fish a woolly bugger. I've done that real slow. But the thing is, you're sinking it down, and you're just fishing it slow. And you're getting down so, into that you know, 6 to eight, ten feet of water. So are the best times of day,
0: would you say, from daybreak for a large amount of daybreak to um, uh, 10 a.m., you were saying, and then... yeah. Uh, you want to go take a nap? It'd be okay until about what four o'clock, and then would they start yeah, get back uh, out. firing up again?
1: Yeah, get back out in the evenings. You know, that's another good time. Again, you're, you're still you're dealing with shadows, but now you're on the opposite side of the lake, the western or northwestern sides of the lake, and you're fishing the shadows. That's a lot of times where you can start picking up bass in the evening. Another thing too, if you know, I've never found color to be a, an issue with largemouth bass. I think color is almost, they see color. I know From my research and my reading, I know that they see color. I've never had an experience where I've been fishing a certain color bass bug, and then I switch to another color in the same size, and suddenly I start catching fish where I wasn't catching fish before. It's not like, like trout. You know, sometimes, you know, depending on the color of your patterns, I think they can, they're Still, even mm-hmm. in trout, size is probably more important. Um, right. But anyway, hang on just a moment here. Um, oh, never mind. Anyway, sorry, I had this other call coming in. What was I saying? Um, Talking hello, about color. color. Talking oh, about yeah, color. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, OK, yep, I, I know where I was going now with that. Thank you. I've never experienced that, but what I have experienced is this. I'll downsize the bug. And that's true in trout fishing, too. A lot of times, if you get a trout come up and look at a fly, you know, you're fishing a dry fly, a little emerger, something along, and they look at it and they go back down. A lot of times, if you just go one size smaller, trout will come up and eat it. The same is true with bass. I think when you downsize, like, say, you're fishing, in, uh, say, an eighty 89, eighty nine, Tempco 80 number two hook, which is a reasonably good size bass bug, if you drop down to a size six or even a size 10, sometimes I find those small bass bugs. The only thing I can think is they're not as intimidating. You know, they're smaller, and so the bass respond a little more aggressively to it. But I've had evenings. This is particularly, I think, true in the evening, more so than the morning. I don't know, maybe not. But if I downsize, that's, if I'm not catching fish, one of the things I'll do if I want to keep fishing topwater is I downsize to a smaller bass buck, and I'll keep fishing topwater to see if I can pull some fish in. If I can't, then and I'll be the first to admit just like dry fly fishing for trout I'm very slow to give up on the top water fishing for bass but eventually eventually I I go okay you got to switch tactics here and try something different if you want to hook a fish and that's when I'll go to some of my more sinking water type stuff okay so it sounds like
0: uh from what you just said you generally start out on on top water
1: and if it yeah. gets
0: slow then you're moving to a little deeper and a little deeper until you can find yep. some fish yeah please so yeah. find some fish, uh, yep,
1: that's kind of the pattern okay. I, that's, and you know i I love top water, I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people do. I literally love throwing bass bugs. you mentioned all the cover and stuff. And I can entertain myself for a very long time trying to drop this bug right next to that lily pad or yeah. tuck it around with <laughs> whatever. And um, I can entertain yeah. myself for a long time before I finally go. Oh, okay, maybe you want to catch some fish. Maybe you better think about doing something different here. If I'm not. A lot of times though, you do though. Yeah. Largemouth bass are very top water oriented. Yeah. You know, they're. Looking yeah, I remember.
0: Different. Yeah, I remember my dad, you know, being a boat. and My dad is saying, "Okay, see those lily pads? See that little open area between those two lily pads? Yeah. Put yep. your back then we were throwing plugs, right? So put your yeah. plug right in there. Yeah. I still remember that. But,
1: yeah. but you know, the yeah. first
0: the first fish I ever caught on a fly, and it was a fly I tied, was a largemouth bass, and I caught him on a mosquito. Just before sunset on this little farm lake by where we were living in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. And, uh, but that was the first time I'd ever caught a, and it was a largemouth on a mosquito. So
1: uh,
0: I'll always remember I'll t- that.
1: Yeah. I'll tell you about the first bass I caught. As with most people, when I first began fly fishing, I was in my late teens and I was totally oriented towards trout. And I had a friend of mine, we used to go up he was a fly fisherman, and we used to go up to the El Sable, and we fished the El Sable and the Pierre Marquette and all those trout rivers. And I caught a few trout by that point, you know. I mean, I was just, this was my first year or so, and I had caught, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 12-inch little browns that are 10, 12 inches. Yep, nothing very big. And so, and I a lot of times I stay at our cabin. Our cabin is about... Uh, the Pier Marquette's about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour west of us, and the Sable's only about the same distance to the north. So it's pretty well located to hit those rivers. And so I had my little four-way rod out, and I was just kind of more or less kind of playing around, trying to cast, and I maybe was hooking a bluegill here and there. And all of a sudden, I it was I was fishing a little saw tackle of something, and all of a sudden this fish grabbed it, and took off, and, you know, we have a sandy shoreline, and then you get a color break, and the bottom gets dark, so you can't really see the bottom real well. There's a little drop-off there, too. And this fish went tearing off out in the lake. And I was like, whoa, I mean, it's pulling line off my reel. I was like, wow, the, okay, this is good. And so I started working it back in, and it hit that color break. And about three times in a row, it just took off and raced back out. And I'm like, whoa, no, the trout have never done this. And I really, at that point, didn't really know what I had hooked. I thought maybe it was a big bluegill or something. And I finally got it in, and it was about a 14-inch largemouth that had come and grabbed that little soft tackle. And I was like, holy cow, this fight was a lot bigger than any of the trout I caught up to this point. (laughs) And that was a real eye-opener for me. And I kind of went back. I had this gap in my fishing. My grandfather passed away when I was 14, but he really couldn't fish his last few years. So really my fishing with him was up till I was maybe about ten years old or so. But we were bass fishing, but you know, I have some memories of fishing with him, but you know, when I hooked that bass, all of a sudden I kind of like, Oh yeah, this this I kind of reconnected with being a kid and fishing with my grandfather and for my grandfather the largemouth bass was the fish. You know, that was the one he loved to catch. And so that was kind of my little eye-opening moment when all of a sudden I went, you know, there's something here that I need to pay attention to. Anyway.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I know. I, I had to convert my dad. He was a largemouth bass fisherman. That's what he loved to do. Because he was from mm-hmm. Illinois, you know, and he used to fish yeah. stuff. And, and I had to teach, I taught my dad how to fly fish. He taught me how to fish, but I taught him how to fly fish. And it took a while before we got him into trout, but uh, the first trip we went up and floated the Bighorn, and he caught about a twenty-inch brown there. And that, <laughs> that, then he says, "Okay, this isn't too bad, especially on the yeah. slider." <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So
0: I had a similar situation. Let's switch over. Uh, let's switch over to um, smallmouth here. Talk about smallmouth. Okay. Where am I on a different lake looking for smallmouth? Am I on the same lake? What, um, uh... You know,
1: most of the lakes I fish don't have their largemouth lakes. Uh, you okay. got to get up, you got to get further north than we are. you got to get to a colder water lake, you know, I, and my smallmouth fishing primarily is river fishing. I have caught smallmouth when I've gone to the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, on like musky pike trips. And I've caught some smallmouth lakes up there. Those lakes tend to be colder little rockier type shorelines that kind of thing but most of my smallmouth fishing are on the rivers in the lower peninsula and there's some really good smallmouth rivers and the one river i fish is loaded with crayfish and really that's about the only pattern you need when i get into the rivers if you're wading around in the rivers you want to find kind of the rockier type of runs where you got a hard rocky kind of cobble bottom that tends to be where they hold more so than in the quieter sections of the river the flatter quieter sections I don't know if that's true with all rivers it's certainly true of the river I fish the one particular river I fished and a couple of different ones I've fished and if they've got if you've got crayfish uh, one of the rigs I use is pretty similar to euro nymphing what I do is I just I have a leader I put a set of I put a piece of uh, and I describe this in the book. Um I use a piece of amnesia, kind of a red colored amnesia for my for my cider material and then I'll drop down and put a little clip on, I'll clip a little uh, crayfish on. Same ideas with the, you know, using them for largemouth cuz they got that hinge and I'll just throw them up to the heads of the runs and I'll tight line the crayfish down through the run. It's very similar to euro nymphing. And hmm. I just watch the cider. But a lot of times with smallmouth, I mean, with trout, you know, and you're nymphing, you got to pay attention because sometimes the takes are pretty subtle. With a smallmouth bass on a crayfish, I don't even know if I need the cider because, truthfully, they hit them. They you hit them yeah. pretty hard. Yeah, they hit it pretty hard. And you know you've got them. Or I've caught them. If you got some cover, like I've had some down trees before where I'll I'll toss the crayfish up uh, above the current upstream, and then drift it down in along the edges. I can't get down too far because I probably hook into the wood. But if you drift it along the edge, along the front edge of the tree or some down material, a lot of times you pull smallmouth out of there. But the truth is, I, I think I fish a crayfish about 80, 90 percent of the time when I'm smallmouth fishing on rivers that have crayfish. If not, you know, you can pull wooly buggers. Or that kind of thing, or it's, I don't fish topwater a lot for smallmouth. I should probably more. Um, what about uh, nymphing? But I know. I mean, I have caught a few on poppers and things on rivers, but it's more fishing. It's more fish in the crayfish patterns or the the you know, the, well, a, the sinking patterns. Tim,
0: what about nymphing for smallmouth?
1: Yeah, big nymphs. Big nymphs like big Clouser, Clouser, uh Bob Clouser has a bunch of you know big nymphs like swimming nymphs and stuff that he has in one of his books on on smallmouth same thing i think they they work great too and again if you just rig it similar to a you know, kind of use a, a euro style rig it, that, that's a really good rig for that because you got the cider materials, the main thing you know because you can watch that that's such a much more subtle way than fishing indicators or something like that
0: yeah yeah tim let me take a quick break and i had a i have a question that just came in on the internet about smallmouth so We'll hit that one when we come right back. Hang tight. Be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Tim Jacobs about tactics for bass, panfish, pike, and other warm water species. So if you'd like to ask him a question, go to our homepage, fill out that Q&A text box and send it to us and we'll we'll get your question answered for you. Okay. Yeah, had a question come in from Matt McGraw. He asks, uh, regarding smallmouth, what clues you in to know when they move from feeding low or in the middle of the water column to top water? Are you simply looking for edible things, plopping the water, hours of daylight, temperature, or something else altogether?
1: Um, hmm, interesting question. Well, the question sounds to me like maybe we're talking um, – Lake fishing for smallmouth, perhaps? Um, Yeah, I didn't say. Yeah. You know, it would depend on the lake. I know we have lakes that have the big hexagene and mayfly hatches that happen. And when those hatch, I know the fish will feed on them. And I don't know that they're, well, I don't know. I guess I'd fish the same. If I were topwater fishing, I'd probably approach it the same way. I mean, typically when I fish, lakes I always start with top water and it makes no difference if I'm fishing bass smallmouth largemouth fishing pike fishing muskie any of those things I always tend to start with top water just because I enjoy fishing that way and if I'm not getting a response to top water that's when I'll start changing up tactics and that's true for all those fish if I were going to approach if I went up to the oh like the boundary waters maybe in Minnesota I saw one question actually from Tom Tobridge here in Glenwood asked me about, I had a question on the list from about the boundary yeah. waters. I've not right. fished them, but I know people that have fished them, and we talked about it. If I were fishing the boundary waters, I would start in the morning with top water, and I'd work the, at the shorelines and stuff where I saw drop-offs and things and see if I could get the bass to come up and eat it. If they wouldn't come up and eat it, then I'd go down after them with different things. And that's okay. the way I approach most of my bass fishing, and it's more because I'm fishing the way I enjoy fishing, you know. I enjoy not, top water. I just it, enjoy it, top water, and so. So, from, Tim, it, I'm it not, makes
0: it, it makes sense what you're saying. You know, it's an approach, and every day, every hour could be a little bit different depending on water temperature or light or whatever. Yeah. So uh, it seems like there's no magic dial that you can dial in, but you you start working the different levels. Um, you know, different water yeah. columns so you find them, right? So you know they're, where they're yeah. at.
1: Yeah, and I I know with largemouth, I know their pattern. They they tend to be shallow in the morning, and then later in the day they'll move off. They don't move far, but they'll move off to the deeper water. I definitely, with smallmouth, if I were in a lake, I would definitely maybe spend some time looking for some, you know, rocky structure either along the shoreline or if you had some islands or something like that. I would look for some rocky-type drop-offs. I that I know that's where smallmouth will tend to hold, and but you know I just don't about the only place I encounter smallmouth in lakes is up in the UP, and I do okay. I, I do occasionally catch them, but a lot of times I'm targeting, you know the pike or the muskie, and the smallmouth come as kind of a an aside to sometimes you know I'm yeah you know, they'll eat the same flies that pike and muskie will. Um, But I have to be honest, most of my smallmouth fishing where I'm really like, I'm going to go after smallmouth, I'm jumping into uh, smallmouth rivers and fishing rivers.
0: Okay, okay, good, good. What about, um, let's jump to pike for a minute. Where do you find pike? I mean, who lives alongside of pike? Smallmouth, largemouth, you find them in the same water?
1: They all do, they all do. If you're in the lake. Okay, so if you're in lakes that are largemouth lakes with blue, plenty of bluegill and stuff, and it kind of depends on where the water temperatures go in that lake, but most of the lakes I fish, oh, they'll pop out in the mid 80s on a warm in the summer. Um, most of those lakes, your bass and your bluegill are along the shorelines. Your pike tend to move a little deeper off. So if I'm going to target pike. And I occasionally do on our lake that I fish, my lake that I have my cottage on. Sometimes I'll purposely go out and fish for pike. But what I'll do is I will put on a a rig with one of my um, sinking leaders, one of my, like, you know, my Versa leader, real Versa leader, or do a sink tip. And then I'll I'll put out and put a maybe 20- or 30-pound wire, and I'll put a clip on it. And then I'll fish, like, a big streamer-type pattern, like, you know, white, solid, with all white is a good pattern to try, but I'll move off into the deeper sections of the lake, and I'll just be patient and let that fly sink, and then I'll just start swimming in towards me. So I'm fishing the deeper sections of those lakes. Now, if you get up into cooler water lakes, like in the Upper Peninsula, or I've gone up and I've fished the Tuquamanon River, which is almost more like a lake than a river. I mean, it's a little like 200 yards wide in places. It's a huge river. It has a has a flow, but it's not, I mean, it's not anything like what you think of rivers here in Colorado. It's just a big, slow-flowing river. You know, there, we hit the edges, but the banks of the river, and we catch pike along the edges of it. Okay. But it's a real cool water river. And so you're looking more for cool water areas. Um, and about the only time, I mean, pike are pretty aggressive. You know, if you get a fly in front of them, a lot of times they'll eat it. They're, it's I'm interesting. I'm assuming they're, much,
0: I, was, I was going to oh, say. Go
1: I'm assuming that the
0: pike will feed on smallmouth and largemouth if they can get at them, wouldn't they?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Back, yeah. I tell. I have a little story. I started the pike chapter. One of the chapters, I forget where in the book. You know, it was really interesting. I walked out onto the end of our dock one morning with a cup of coffee, and I was looking down, and we have our typical little bluegill and stuff swimming around, but we have a weed bed just off the dock. And all of a sudden, like an arrow out of – something came out of the weeds. I mean, it was like a flash, and it went underneath our dock. And I looked down, and suddenly this bluegill was turned and floating up. And this pike that was probably about 30 – 30 inches, maybe 35 inches. That's a reasonable size pike. It was a nice size pike, not big trophy, but for our lake, it was not too bad a pike. Just leisurely swam out from under our dock, looped around, and just boom and the bluegill was gone. <laughs> it was just that fast and that fast. They are real straight line attack predator type fish, and so typically when you hook one on a fly, you feel it. I mean, they hit, they hit, and they hit hard. And um, well, it sounds and like occasionally uh... they're up channel. <laughs> It sounds
0: just, like, from your, from your description, ahead. it sounds like the pike came in and stunned it and then came around and ate it.
1: That's Is exactly that, was what Was that the it case? Did. That was exactly so that's, the case. It, so and literally something. It, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it literally came out of the weeds so fast, I I did not, I don't know, I could not, in its first pass, I didn't really know what it was. I knew it was a fish, but I couldn't make out what it was. It was literally more like just this flash of something and then I saw the the bluegill and so it hit it came out it just hit that bluegill and it and its it speed carried it underneath the dock and then it came out around and my experience with pike is a lot of times that's kind of what the take is like they hit stuff they hit stuff pretty hard and they're they're real different you know they look like musky but they behave very differently than musky they're very aggressive uh, whereas a musky is very you know they the follow the mm-hmm. musky follow is so yeah yeah. As everybody knows but what you, yeah, anybody's fish farm. Yeah. You
0: know. The way you describe that gives me some ideas about, you know, when you are fishing for pike, that if that's common, you know, the stun technique and then come back and, and eat it, uh, that that may make a difference in, you know, when you when you hear it, feel a bump, like, you know, what do you do next? <laughs> yeah. Right? Do you, do yeah. you just kind of... Let off the retrieve, you know, if you're doing a, a retrieve, if you're a streamer, do you just let off the retrieve? Come, yeah. Let it flutter a little bit and see if they come back and, and grab it. That'd be something to think about. I, I
1: you know, yeah. anyway,
0: yeah. I, yeah.
1: And I don't know that I've, ex- most of the time I've caught Pike, it's been a pretty solid hit the first time. Okay. I don't know if exactly why or how, if that's the case, but... Yeah, fishing those big streamers, and I do enjoy pike fishing. I do it some, and I do it some on our lake. Sometimes I'll just, as a change of pace, go out and target the pike. But I'm moving off into the lake farther. I'm looking for those weed beds that are a little further out. They tend to be in a little bit deeper, cooler water. And I'll be honest, our lake is not a a trophy pike lake by any means.
0: Right, right. Um, We uh, We got a question in from Ruben Amador in Colorado Springs, Colorado, who says he just bought an eight-weight rod, and he's looking to get into bigger flies and fish. He's interested in pike fishing in Colorado. Um, what uh, He wants to know, what leader setup do you recommend for someone that's ready to
1: start pulling uh, pike
0: flies? Um,
1: you can either buy pre-made pike leaders. But I what I do, because a lot of times you're fishing streamers, So a lot of times what I'll do is I will take, oh, like a a Rio Versa leader and like a 5 or 7 inch per second sink rate, and the leader comes out in a little loop. It's 25-pound test mono. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll use like Chameleon, Maxima Chameleon, and I'll do like 20-pound test off from that, and you can either loop-to-loop it If you want to preserve the loop in the Versiliter, a lot of times I'll take, because it's mono, I'll take the loop out and I'll just do a blood knot or a barrel knot. And I'll step down to 20 pound. And then to that, depending on the size pike you think you're going to be fishing for, I would add about uh, 15 to 18 inches of 20 or 30 or 40 pound wire. And the knot you've got to use is uh, Boy, I've got to pull this up. It's an Albright knot, I believe, where you bend the wire over and then you slide the mono through it and you wrap it around and then come back through the loop and tighten it up. It tightens up against the wire. You can search that out. I think I've got a description in my book. But by the way, anybody out there who's listening who has a question for me, my email address is just tim at com. Feel free to email me and I can definitely dial you into exactly what it is or give you a better look at it but anyway then then on the end of that wire i'll i'll just do a a regular clinch knot with a, a little clip on the end the only thing about a clinch knot when we clinch knot uh on a trout line on monofilament you can pull on the main line to tighten the clinch knot down when you do a clinch knot with wire you've got to pull the tag in if you pull the other end it puts a little curl on the wire so you got to pull the tag in to cinch it down but if you do about three or four wraps cinch it down into a little clinch knot and you got a clip on the end now you can start attaching your flies to that you got a sink tip so now you've got your eight weight rod i'm assuming you're probably fishing with some type of a bass bug or weight forward line that's appropriate and then you've got a 10 foot sink tip and you can fish your streamers and stuff for pike off of that and then you got your wire and my normal formula for wire is I use the lightest wire I think I can get away with. If I'm if the pike, if I know I'm fishing in a fishery that has a really big pike, like you know 40 inches or up, I'll probably jump up to at least 30 pound, maybe 40 pound wire. But like on our lake, which are smaller pike, I just use 20 pound wire. I've never had any trouble with it.
0: Mm-hmm. So That's kind okay. of my
1: setup. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What kind of flies would you recommend to to uh, Ruben?
1: Um, I'm looking for Well, pike. you know, I think uh, Barry Reynolds, you know, bunny, streamers. Uh, the fish, the fly that I fish, actually, uh, my friend Jason Haddock's who's a really great, talented Colorado tire, does beautiful work. He gave me some of his pike flies, and they're basically a rabbit strip off the tail, and then he did some flash, and then he's got a little, like, I think it may be a I don't know, Arctic fox collar or something like that on the front of it. And then he just put a little uh, head on it, you know, with some eyes. And so it's basically just a white kind of bunny strip fly. That's a pretty durable fly. You know, rabbit strip type bunny flies are good for a pike because they're pretty durable. I heard you advertising Plaglisi fiber, you know, flies right. that the bird. I tie with Plaglisi fiber stuff. That's real durable stuff, and so I'll tie a streamer type just off his, Stuff where he you know he kind of builds the fly coming forward uh, the one thing I'd say about any kind of fiber flies or yak hair yak's another great I love yak hair because it's it's very translucent but you know when you tie with that stuff keep your flies sparse you know it's real easy to overdress those flies and a very sparsely tied fly that is more translucent is tends to I think fish better but that's the setup. So you got a sink tip. You know, you got you extend your leader out a little bit. You put some wire on the end, and then I put a clip on the end. If you buy pre-made trout uh, pike leaders, they almost always have a clip on the end of them, as well. And I know okay. SA has a has a whole line of toothy critter type leaders for musky and pike and stuff. Uh huh. Right. Yeah.
0: We're getting short on time here, but I did have there was one question in here I wanted to ask you because I didn't know the answer and. I don't know if you know the answer either, but Bill Henry in Brooklyn, New York
1: have asked, have you ever fished the clothesline method? That, okay. You know what that is? I saw that question and I had to Google it. I was like, okay, oh. what is he talking about here? So I actually, when you sent me the questions, I Googled it. If I am looking at... The washing line method is an English method. I don't know if it's the same thing, if it's what he's referring to, but there is an English method of fly fishing called the washing line method. And it looks like guys use it on lakes in England. And what it is, is they have basically a strike indicator, which is a bobber. Of course, being English, they call it a booby. Actually, I like that. They call it a booby. And off the end of that, they may have two or three nymph-type flies. And they throw that thing out there, let it splat on the water to hopefully attract some fish. And then they do a variety of retrieves where they slowly pull it in. I've never done that particular kind of fishing. However, in my book, I do have a little sidebar article called the popper dropper combination. And I have done that before, where I will take a little deer hair fly or a little foam popper fly And I'll put a tie tie off just like you would if you're nymph fishing for trout. I'll put a section of uh, tip it off the the bend of the hook, and then I'll tie a small little bead head or something to that, and then I'll just pop that popper in. And the popper acts like a bobber, or a strike indicator if you want to you know use that terminology. And I'll just pop that in, and sometimes the fish take popper, but a lot of times suddenly the popper disappears under the water and you set the hook. And most of the time, it's bluegill. I mean, that's, that's a good method because bluegill are just very curious about stuff that goes on, whether they eat it or not. If you throw a popper out and you pop it a few times, typically bluegill will come and look at it. And if you've got a little nymph trailing behind it, they'll grab it. They'll often grab it. So there's yeah. a little sidebar called popper dropper. So if his question was about what the English call the washer line method, he said, "Clothesline." I think, washer line method. If that's the same thing, it's very similar to my popper dropper idea, and and that's not really my idea. I think, I, yeah. But so that yeah. so maybe I have, maybe I haven't. I don't know. That, that's what I that was my I researched that question in case it came up, and that's what I found. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a great
0: answer. Great answer. Well, unfortunately, we got to wrap things up here. Because we're out of time. Time goes fast on these shows, I'll tell you. And, uh, but, but hang tight here. We're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And we'll also be giving away the copy of your latest book, Tim, uh, Tactics for Bass and Other Warm Water Species, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So Stackpole's been a great partner of mine since 2006, and we've given away a lot of Stackpole Books on this show, so we really appreciate their support. So um, hang tight. We'll be back in a minute. We'll be giving some of those prizes away. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why... Over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on the Global Rescue icon in the footer of our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. So check them out, and um, that link will take you right to their website. Just a little reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, Please take a minute to give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? click on that. We'd really appreciate it. But now it's time to give away a few prizes. Winners of the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show uh, so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and be a member of, so check them out. And let's see here. Let me get my database, fire it up here. And have it give me a pick, and it looks like this is going to be Randy Powell, Randy Powell in Texas, Randy Powell in Texas. So, congratulations, Randy! You just got yourself a membership to uh, Fly Fisher's International. And now we'll give away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Uh, to learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org. Another great organization to support. And um, so, to learn more about them. Go to tu dot org. And our winner for that is Al Moore. Al Moore, and Al's in Georgia. So congratulations, Al. And uh, I'm sure you gentlemen both will enjoy uh, the prizes you won tonight. So now, a giveaway copy of Tim's latest book, Tactics for Bass and Other Warm Water Species, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And so here's what you got to do. I'm going to ask a question here in just a moment. You've got to go to our homepage there, askaboutflyfishing.com. And in that uh, that box where you could ask questions during the show, fill that in with your name, your email address, and your answer. And the first person that gets it correct wins Tim's book, uh, Tactics for Bass and Other Warm Water Species. So here we go. So the question is, what is Tim's favorite fly or... All right. <laughs> I give it away. What is his favorite fly for smallmouth bass? Let's put it that way, see if I get the right answer uh, by just asking it that way. But then we have to wait just a second to see uh, if they hear me and type it in the answer. And so we'll just take type for a minute. I didn't want to give them any more hits. That's a pretty easy question for me tonight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I usually kind of do two parts or harder questions, but I I don't know, I'm just easy tonight, I guess. So let's see what we get here. And I'm still waiting, waiting, waiting for an answer. Just want to make sure my form is up there on the homepage. Yeah, it's there, okay, good. Okay, oh, I fooled him. That was my, that was the fly. Uh, We got it, the first answer is mosquito. And, Tom, that was the fly that I caught my first largemouth on. But that wasn't the favorite fly that Tim mentioned for his smallmouth. And let's see if we've got any more. We've got another one coming in, Bob Younger. Bob Younger from Indianapolis says crayfish. Is that it, Tim? That's it. That's it. Okay. All right. Correct answer. Bob Bob Younger's one before. I recognize that name. So uh, good job, Bob. Got uh, uh, Ranger Bob Younger. So I don't know if he's a, a ranger or not. <laughs> it's kind of, could be a forest ranger. It could be a uh, uh, like a uh, Navy SEAL kind of ranger. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Bob, send me your address so that I can. Uh, you can use the same form that you just used. Put in your address again there and uh, where you want the book shipped, and we'll get uh, we'll get a book shipped out to you. So. Thanks for playing and, and uh, paying attention, and uh, I hope you like like the book. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you being on the show again with us. It was a pleasure to talk with you, as usual, and uh, your wealth of information, and I love you sharing your experiences with us. So thanks again for being with us.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Good, good. Well, hopefully all of you out there have found our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 375 shows, I think it is now, which you can search by keyword or keyword phrase like trout or smallmouth or or brown trout or Madison River, whatever you want to search for. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find in the wave shows. So we've got lots and lots of good information. Uh, Our next broadcast will be on April 19th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And in that show, I'm going to interview Jeff Currier, And our topic for the show will be Courier's Quest. Jeff is well-known and well-traveled. He hosts fly fishing trips worldwide and is well-known for his presentations at the fly fishing shows and his incredible artwork. He constantly travels and develops techniques for catching the most exotic fish imaginable in places where even the most avid adventurer refuses to go. His quest to catch 500 different species on the fly continues. Join us as Jeff shares some of his adventures in his quest and find out if he's getting close to meeting his goal. Be sure to add this show to your upcoming calendar. Just go to, uh, just right under Jeff's picture on our homepage, there's an Add to Calendar button. Just click on that, and uh, you can add it to your calendar, and then you won't forget uh, when the show is. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Musky Town, Global Rescue, Gill's Fly Fishing International, and Enrico Puglisi Fives for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.